Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. No surprise, tonight we are in Daniel chapter 10. So turn there. Daniel chapter 10 follows the pattern that we've seen in several chapters of the latter part of Daniel, ever since we've gotten into the eschatological parts of Daniel. We have noticed a pattern. Just like when we began chapter 9 and we looked at how Daniel prayed and how he prayed for his own sin and the sin of his own people, we need to look closely at chapter 10 because it represents a couple of very important things. First off, since we started the eschatological portions of Daniel, I've been saying to you that some of the kings that are listed in the book of Daniel are not just merely human being kings. They are kings who are driven by a dark spiritual force. And tonight we're going to see that just laid out for us. In fact, tonight we're going to see what I have referenced several times, that the reason that sometimes the angels have a difficulty getting to Daniel immediately is because they are withstood by the dark spiritual forces in heaven, who they refer to specifically in this chapter as the prince of Persia. The kings of Persia withstood me. Now we know, obviously, the kings sitting on the throne in the Middle East are not the ones who had the power to withstand angels. Angelic visitations sent by God on a mission to bring Daniel a message they are not withstood by any human being. So obviously we're talking about a spiritual entity who also inhabits the king of Persia. And even more interestingly, you're going to see at the end of this, that the angel who is speaking to Daniel directly says that he's going to go back because Michael is holding the prince of Persia sort of in a holding pattern. And he says he's going to go back And apparently they're going to whip up, you won't find the words whip up, but apparently they're going to whip up on the prince of Persia, and then the angel says, and lo, the prince of Grisha comes. And certainly enough, at that point in history, you see Alexander the Great suddenly sweeping across the Middle East and northern Africa, and... And I keep saying, because I want to emphasize it, that historians are really at a loss to explain why it is that Alexander at his young age had the kind of power that he had, had the kind of ability to conquer nations and to amass great armies that swore great allegiance to him. And so historians who don't have a biblical perspective, they'll say, well, Alexander made the people better in some sort of way. But the truth of the matter is you cannot understand world history. You cannot stand the world You cannot understand, or you can't stand the world. You cannot understand the world as it is today if you don't understand your Bible. Only a biblical worldview gives you the lens to understand what's going on in the world. And when you look at the world today and you see all the very 
questionable, dark things that are going on, you have to recognize what Paul said, that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, that we're wrestling against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And in that list, he includes the cosmokratos, the rulers of the darkness of this world. And so the biblical perspective on this world is that it is ruled by dark forces. Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. When Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain and offered him all the kingdoms of this world, the one thing Jesus did not say to him is, those are not yours to give. Instead, he recognized that Satan had control of the kingdoms of this world. So we're going to see that really laid out here in the beginning of Daniel chapter 10. We're going to see inarguable evidence that the kings, certainly the kings in the Middle East, the kings that were oppressing Israel, were kings that were ruled by dark forces, by satanic forces. But then the other thing that we're going to see in the first part of chapter 10 that I think is equally important is Daniel's reaction to the angelic vision, because I'm going to argue that the first vision he sees is a Christophany. For those of you who don't know that word, it just means a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. And we're going to compare to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to see that there seems to be a direct parallel to Christ both before his incarnation and after his incarnation, and how he appears to people in his majestic, spiritual, dare I say, angelic form. And Daniel's reaction is unlike the reaction that we see these days in way too much of the church world. Way too much of the church world keeps telling you that you just need to be friendly and familiar with angels and that you just, when you hear from God, you just tell God what you think and and that angels do your bidding. I remember a book one time that was being promoted on the Oprah program. And the root, I know, Oprah. I read about it on the internet. Not that I'm an Oprah fan. And what the book was about was how to get angels to do your bidding. That angels, after all, are ministering spirits so you can control angels and you can get them to do your bidding for you. And that's the way so much of the church world looks at the angelic concepts. They think that angels are there for the purpose of us telling them what they should do as opposed to understanding that they are messengers of God sent from God to do God's bidding and that wherever he's doing good things for us, he may use angels to do it, but we're not in control of the angels. God is in control of the angels. I'm trying to think of any place in scripture where there was an angelic appearance where a human being knew it was an angel, where they did anything other than cowering fear. And that's what you're going to see from Daniel. Daniel's going to fall down on his face. In fact, very much like Isaiah, he's not even going to be able to speak until another angel touches his lips. Then he's allowed to even speak, which is more evidence that we're talking about a Christophany here. But Daniel's reaction is appropriate. I spoke today to an attorney a fellow that I hadn't spoken to before, and in the course of conversation, I said to him that I was a Christian pastor. And he asked where the church was and the church name and all that. And he started talking about how growing up he used to 
discuss with his Baptist friends and his Church of Christ friends and all this. I got the impression that he was probably Roman Catholic by the way that he was talking. And at one point, fortunately, he said, now, I don't pretend to be a preacher. And I said, that's good. I won't pretend to be an attorney. And we just kind of came to an agreement on this one. But one thing he was bemoaning, even from his perspective, was that the world these days is so very different than the world was when he and I were growing up. We compared ages and found out that he was three years older than me. And he said, so you're of my generation. You know what it was like growing up. He listed off a great many social ills. And then, of course, he had to add, now, I'm not judging. But he just, even he, even in his very minimal biblical knowledge and even in his very limited religious background, even he understood that the world was just getting progressively worse and worse. And then we were talking about the fact that the world seems to encroach on the church all the time. And that it used to be that the church did the encroaching. The church used to influence the society. And these days, the society is influencing the church. And so I got off the phone from that conversation, and I thought, well, he's absolutely right. It's just that obvious. Anybody looking at it axiomatically can say, yes, that's true. If you compare the way that America was... 50 years ago, 100 years ago, if you see the Christian roots of our nation 200 years ago, and then you look at the world today, it's obviously just very, very different. And the first thought that came to my mind was, it's because we have forgotten that this world is ruled by the dark forces, the principalities, the powers, the spiritual wickedness, and we have forgotten what it means to worship God. We have forgotten what it means that we are dealing with a truly righteous and holy God. We have forgotten that he is majestic and he is righteous and that he is sovereign and that he is in charge. And instead, we kind of treat him like our buddy, our co-pilot, our next door neighbor. And we have forgotten to do the very thing Steve just elucidated. We have forgotten to fall down on our face. We have forgotten to to be in front of him in genuine worship, which essentially is what the word worship means, kiss toward, to do obedience toward, to put your head in the dust toward, to understand that he is completely and utterly holy, righteous God, and we at our very best are altogether vanity, according to the Bible. We're very self-willed. We're very wrapped up in me and what I want and my flesh, and I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And we just forget that righteous, holy God deserves to be worshipped. So when we see the Christophany appear before Daniel, he is going to demonstrate genuine worship. And it's going to take the form of getting down on the ground in front of him. And then, as so often happens in the Bible, he's picked up. Unlike the Benny Hins who would knock people down, they actually get down in front of God. He lifts them up. So with that as introduction, let's look at chapter 10, and then we will begin to get into the king of the north and the king of the south. And that'll take us this week and next week to discuss uh, the king of the north and the king of the south. Because the king of the north and the king of the south really have to do with 
the history in advance that Daniel lays out, so much so with such accuracy that the critics of the Bible oftentimes point to 10 and 11 of Daniel in order to say there's just no way this could have been written ahead of time because it is so accurate. And I can't remember all the details. I haven't memorized everything. So I'm going to be reading from a book that I trust because it's good to read authors that you trust. So I'll be reading from my book, A Brief History of the Future. And there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. All right. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Now he doesn't launch straight into the vision. He tells us how the vision came to him. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. That's 21 days that he had been fasting and mourning before God. And in a moment, the angel's going to say, you were heard immediately. I heard you 21 days ago. God heard you 21 days ago. And he dispatched me to come to you. But I was withheld by the prince of Persia. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and look, notice what Daniel has done here. He's told us it was in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He said it's on the 24th day of the first month, the month of Abib. Now we know what day it was. And he tells us where he was, that he was by the great river, the Tigris River. So Daniel is being really specific on purpose so that you can understand that he was someplace at a certain time and had a certain vision on that day. That's what drives the critics crazy because they want so badly to late date this and say that it was written during the time of Antioch Epiphanes after all these events had taken place because there's just no way that Daniel could know these things. But Daniel himself took the time to specify where he was, when it was, what day it was, what month it was, what year it was. He wants us to understand that he actually saw it back then. Starting at verse 5, he says, I lifted my eyes and I looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. Does anybody understand what that means? His face had the appearance of lightning. If Luann's face suddenly looks like lightning, we're scattering. We're running away as fast as we can. I always do. <laughs> His face apparently just glowed. Light came off his face. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished brass. And the sound of his words 
were like the sound of a tumult. This wasn't one voice speaking. This was tumultuous voice, like many waters roaring when he spoke. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away, and they hid themselves. Okay, why is that important? Because... Because I happen to believe in a rapture to come. I happen to believe in a a forthcoming catching away of the church. And I only believe that because, well, it's what the Bible says. And the critics of that idea, one of the criticisms that they level at us all the time is, well, look at the descriptions of the rapture. It sounds like a very noisy event. How can that be an event that only applies to the church? Because there's a trumpet, and there's the voice of an archangel, and there's a come up hither, and that's very noisy. So wouldn't everybody hear that? Well, what we keep seeing are examples in the Bible of the fact that God knows how to speak to his people, and that his people will hear his voice when he speaks. Very much the same way as Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice. When God speaks, his people hear him. And when he sends them a trumpet or a voice or an archangel and come up hither, they're going to hear that. When John was told, come up hither, he was the only one who went up because he's the one that heard it. When Elijah's chariot came down and carried him away, Elijah was right there. He saw the chariot, but it wasn't for him to get into. God came to get someone specific and take him away. So God knows how to get his people and how to make sure that his people hear what he wants them to hear. And the same thing happens here in Daniel. He alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, a great dread fell on them and they ran to hide themselves. Okay, keep your finger right there. As I mentioned, let's turn to the book of Revelation for a moment. Revelation chapter 1. Oh, I'm going to start reading at verse 4 just because it's all worth it. I keep going backwards wondering where to start, but we're starting right here. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. How's that for a good greeting? That's a whole lot better than hi, how are you? Sup. Yo, bro. I'm so urban, aren't I? Really. (laughs) Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That would be the Jews. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And even so, amen. Verily, verily, let it be so. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is 
and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's God identifying himself as the one who has all the power. I have all the might. I have all the authority. I'm at the beginning. I'm at the end. I'm the Alpha and Omega. That's God's definition of himself. I'm the one who is, who was, who is to come. He's the one who told Moses, I am that I am. I just simply am. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. That's exactly what Daniel describes. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. That's what Daniel saw. His feet were like burnished brass. Daniel again. When it has been caused to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Same idea. Just like Daniel. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, does that sound like a face like lightning? The same idea, glowing light in his face. So what is John's reaction? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place soon. Okay, back to Daniel. So what John has seen is Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection, after his ascension, he sees him, and yet the form, the figure, seems to be very much like what Daniel saw. Listen again to Daniel's description. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with pure gold of Euphaz. The NASB adds a belt, but we know that it's a, a wrap around his loins, the same way as was described in the book of Revelation. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the tumult or like the sound of a tumult. So I think we can argue we're talking about the same person. Is there any objection to that? Because the descriptions are identical, slightly different wording, 
but descriptions of the same character. And if that is true, then we are talking about a genuine Christophany, that before Jesus was placed in the womb of Mary, before he was incarnate on planet Earth, several times we see him appearing here in the Old Testament, especially when something vital to God important to the people of God, important to Israel. When those things happen, sometimes Christ himself appears. We can certainly argue that it was Christ who wrestled with Jacob and put his leg out of joint. I think that I can make the case that Melchizedek was a Christophany. Certainly the writer of Hebrews seems to describe him as a Christophany. And so we see these appearances of Christ. So now why did he appear to Daniel? Starting in verse 7, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away, and they hid themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me. Does that sound like John saying, I fell down like a dead man? He says, no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. I was like a dead man. And I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. The proper, appropriate place to be before Christ. Face first in the dust. As opposed to standing up proudly, arms akimbo, saying it's a good thing you're here. I've been waiting for you. We've got some things to discuss. (laughs) When Christ shows up, when angels show up, when the messengers of God and the godly glory shows up, you fall down on your face. The last thing you start thinking about is you. All you know of you is, I don't belong here. I should not be here. I am like a dead man. Like Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I I can't stand. How, How can I possibly even speak to one such as you? And I believe we've just lost that. We've lost that in the church. We've lost that in our reverence. We've lost that in our genuine fear and worship of God. We have lost the concept of the God that we are actually dealing with. And were he to show up, I think we'd remember real fast because he'd make sure that our faces were in the dust. So that's what he's done with Daniel. As soon as I heard the sound of his words, as soon as I heard it, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Deathly pallor, I retained no strength, I fell down. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling On my hands and knees. That's the proper order of things. You fall down in front of him. He lifts you up. He makes it appropriate for you to look at him, to speak to him. He's the one who has to bridge the gap between his righteousness and holiness and your sinfulness and depravity. He has to do everything, including touching your lips, to allow you to even speak to one as righteous and holy as him. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. 
And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understanding this, that's 21 days ago, and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now, let me also say that there are plenty of commentaries, and I think rightly it can be argued that what Daniel saw initially was the Christophany, but that now he's dealing with an angel because the angel's going to talk about how he and Michael fought together and how he had stood with Michael before. Perhaps it's the Christophany still speaking to him, perhaps an angel speaking to him. We don't know for certain, but the language here is going to become a little more vague, so I'm going to leave open the possibility that he saw the Christophany, and then an angel is now ministering to him. But it could also be Christ himself ministering to him. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand this, and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words, but... But 21 days ago, I was sent to you. But this is also the reason that I think this is an angel talking to him and not a Christophany, because I refuse to believe that the prince of Persia could hold Christ back for 21 days. I refuse to believe that that happened. But the prince of Persia, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael one of the chief princes, one of the archangels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. 21 days. He was there doing battle in the heavenlies with the demonic forces that drove the king of Persia as they were trying to keep him from getting to Daniel and bringing this vision of what's to come. So there are these battles in the heavenlies that we know nothing about. Sometimes they seem to spill out into our society. Sometimes they certainly seem to reverberate through the world that we live in. But we've got to remember that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No matter how many times we try to do the right thing or try to correct society or try to raise our kids right or no matter how many times we try to do the right and the holy thing, in the end, we've got to be praying to God. We've got to be asking for his intervention. We have to recognize that it's only through the power of Christ that there's going to be any genuine goodness on this planet. And it's never a surprise when there's evil. 21 days, behold, Michael, the archangel, the prince, or the chief, one of the chief princes, he came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So we know now when this vision pertains to. Now he's going to start right where Daniel is. The vision's going to begin right away with, behold, the prince of Grisha comes. And then he's going to explain that the prince of Grisha is not going to pass on his power to his posterity. It's going to go to his four generals. Then two of his generals are going to become the king of the north and the king of the south. And then Daniel's going to be told about battles and warfare and intermarriages and 
treaties and he's told the next couple hundred years of human history. And then he's going to get to the same place that every one of these Daniel visions has ultimately gotten to. He's ultimately going to get to the little horn. And that's the part that Jesus casts into the future still. And the part that John casts into the future still. And so the angel tells Daniel, this is a vision for the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I became speechless. Notice what Daniel did at this point. This time he didn't fall on the ground because there was no life left in him. He did the appropriate thing he worshipped. He put himself on the ground. When these words were spoken, I turned my face toward the ground and I was speechless. He said nothing. He just listened. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips, and then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me. We don't know who that is. We don't know if that was the Christophany, the person he spoke to earlier that touched his lips. We don't know if that was an angelic figure who very often looked like human beings the way they're described. Abraham certainly couldn't tell the angels from human beings until he figured out they were angels when they sent fire from heaven to eat up his sacrifice. And so, so we don't know if this is an angel, but notice what he did. The angelic figure had enough power to touch Daniel's lips in order to make it okay for him to speak. We egocentric human beings, we're so quick to speak. And we're so quick to think that, that we can just burst into God's presence and just start babbling about us and what we want and what he should do and how we prefer things go. And whether you're looking at Daniel, whether you're looking at Isaiah, there are so many examples in the Bible of people who when they're in front of God or angelic visions, not only do they fall down on the ground, but they're fearful to speak. And it has to be made okay by the angel himself, by the one who came as the representative of God. He has to make it okay for us to speak to God. Now, let me be clear here for just a moment. Yes, these are Old Testament examples. Paul does tell us that now through Jesus Christ, we come running boldly to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. But notice that we don't just get to do that because we're human beings. There has to be an intercessor who makes it okay, the same way there is here. There's angelic intercessors, like with Isaiah, that take a tong and take a coal off the fire and touch his lips and say, see, this has touched your lips. Now Isaiah can speak. Same thing with Daniel. The angel has to touch his lips to make it okay for him to speak. There has to be an intercessor between human beings and God in order for human beings to talk to God. Because he's so righteous and so holy and so far above us. His ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. He is so truly, genuinely righteous, holy, and separate that there has to be an intercessor or else sinful us, wormy us, maggot us. We can't go to that God and just talk. 
there has to be an intercessor. So in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, one of the things that was done for us is that we do have that intercessor. We have Jesus as the intercessor, which is why Jesus teaches that when we pray to God, we're to pray in his name. And that doesn't just mean tacking the words in the name of Jesus to the end of the prayer. What that means is I'm praying to you, God, by his authority. I know I don't have the authority. I know it's not in me, but I know that I am invited now to come pray to you, to come boldly to the throne of grace, not by my own authority, but by the authority of the one who has given us the authority. I'm praying to you in his name. And that's what the word name means. It means authority. I use this example a lot. Here, I'll give it to you one more time. You could probably all recite it. But if somebody comes to your door, Yesterday, yesterday, I had cops at my door. I had county sheriffs at my door. If somebody comes to your door and just knocks on the door, you have the right to not open the door. You have the right to say, my house. I'm not opening the door. You look out the window, I don't know him. I'm not opening the door. It's a salesman. It's a Mormon. I'm not opening the door. Really? Nothing? No one laughed at that? Okay, fine. The Jehovah Witnesses are at my door. I'm not going to. Google left that one. You have the right not to open the door. But what happens if they knock at the door and you hear, open up in the name of the law? Now, they're not saying name like Bob or Bill. They're saying under the authority of the law. We are duly invested representatives of the law of the state. Now we have the authority to tell you you have to open the door or we're coming in anyway because we have the name of the law behind us. Okay, it's the exact same way that Jesus uses the word name, that in his name we then can pray to God. By his authority, by his intervention, we can then pray to God. So bless Christ that he would give us that kind of approach to God and make it okay for us to pray to God and to bring our petitions and our thanksgiving to God. But here with Daniel or with Isaiah or any of these Old Testament people, we see why it's important that we have Christ as an intercessor to make it okay for us to pray to God because they couldn't even so much as speak to God unless there was an intercessor who did something for them so that they could speak to God. And we have his son as our intercessor. But we have to have an intercessor. That's my point. All right, we're continuing on. Verse 15, and when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how Can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? There's the key question. How can someone like me talk to you? Because you're you. You're God. You're the representative of God. You're you're the the holy angel. You're the... You're the archangel representative and messenger of God. And then there's me. 
and I am a lowly human being, and I am weak, and I'm frail, and I don't even know the words to use to speak to you. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. In other words, he's saying, I can't even form words. There's no strength in me to talk to you. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. Where'd the strength come from? Wasn't in him. It's not his strength. He has no strength, no voice, no breath. But when the angel tells him it's okay to speak to me, then he has the strength and the courage to speak. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? Of course, the answer to that question is not yet. No, you're going to have to tell me. Do you understand why I came to you? Now look at the second half of verse 20. Again, fascinating stuff. This is, again, more evidence that the principalities and powers are out there warring in the heavens. But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So here's the way it appears to be. 21 days, he's fighting with the prince of Persia on his way to go speak to Daniel, to bring the vision to Daniel that God has assigned for Daniel. 21 days, he's being withstood by demonic heavenly forces. And Michael comes and holds the prince of Persia at bay long enough for the angel to get to Daniel. And then after he has delivered the vision to Daniel, he says, I'm going to go back, join Michael, and we're going to fight against the prince of Persia. The two of us are going to go to battle against the prince of Persia. And once they beat up on the prince of Persia, apparently there's a vacuum. And right into that vacuum comes the prince of Grisha. And we're not talking about human beings here. He said to me, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Grisha is about to come. This is one of the reasons why when we were writing all the charts on the board and kind of making all the connections between the statues and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and then the visions of the lion and the bear and the leopard with wings. And, and that's why I was showing you the connections that in each of them they had a notable king. In each of them there was some king who ruled and apparently did not rule under his own power. And when we get to the little horn, we're also going to see that he is not going to rule under his own power. He's going to be demonically inspired. Rome, no such king is mentioned anywhere in the Bible. There is no such individual ruler, even though there was a series of Caesars, even though they had their Senate, even though that took place. There was nobody that the Bible names that you can say, ah, there's the demonically inspired Nero which, okay, Nero was pretty nuts, but he wasn't like Alexander the Great. I mean, you can name lots of crazy Caesars, 
uh, I think Caligula rises right to the top real quickly. But he's not mentioned in the Bible because that's just human beings who went human being crazy. And we see lots of people who go human being crazy. But they didn't have that demonic power behind them that was driving them. And so it seems to go from Babylon into Medo-Persia, into Greece, and then you'll see the connection again here as we go through the king of the north and the king of the south. It's going to go right from Greece straight to the little horn. And once again, we're going to see it skip right over Rome. And the reason that's important, again, is because so many of the left-behind type books seem to point right at Rome as that's where the Antichrist is going to come from. He's going to rise up and take over Europe. I remember when the uh, European Union was being formed and people were going, oh, here it comes. Here it comes, the ten-nation confederacy. And then when they got to like 13 kingdoms, it was like, oh, well, okay, it's three too many, but hey, he takes three by fours. So maybe that's what it means. And then it kept growing, and now it's obviously not the ten-toed kingdom. The ten-toed kingdom rises out of the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian Empire, which puts him right in the area of Iraq, Iran, Transjordan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, right, right over there where, surprise, surprise, all the problems are in the world right now that are trying to push Israel off the map and into the sea. The very nations that keep threatening to blow up Israel are the very nations out of which the Bible says the Antichrist comes. And if you know that, you can look at world geopolitics today and say, wow, the Bible sure was accurate. So even for the critics of the Bible who want to say, uh, well, Daniel was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes after the events that he described. So it's really a forgery that Jesus for some reason fell for and thought it was a prophecy. Silly Jesus. Even if it was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, how did they know that it was going to be the Middle East where this was all going to be taking place? There's still something strangely prophetic about this book. There is an accuracy that can't be explained any other way than God's sovereignty. So he said to me, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Grisha is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. That is a fascinating phrase. Notice that it's going to happen. These things can be foretold. These prophecies can be called true and accurate because they're already written in heaven in the writing of truth, which implies that God has already written down the future, that God, long before he made the planet, decided to write how it was going to work out. And then when it works out that way, it's because it's the truth. And why is it the truth? Because the God of all truth wrote it. And when the God of all truth wrote it down in the writing of truth, then that's certainly going to happen. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And that takes us into chapter 11. I want to just start it. And then we'll pick it up next week. Because I've already made reference to this. 
And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. You'll notice that is the continuation of verse 21 from chapter 10. I think the big chapter 11 right there is kind of confusing because it gives you the impression that some new idea has begun. But here's the whole idea in toto. It says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. So now we get some idea that the reason Michael has come to help is because a couple of years ago, in the first year of Darius the Mede, this angel had gone to help Michael, who is specifically called the prince of your people. He is the defender of Israel. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. And then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise. And he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. What does that mean? It means they're not going to have that same demonic driving force behind them. Not according to the, to the authority that he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Now, this is where I'm going to start doing a little bit of reading. As if Daniel had not already supplied us with enough detail to convince us of the miraculous accuracy of his visions, and though we would have enough biblical evidence to draw several firm conclusions about the ten-nation kingdom and its little horn ruler, we get an even more focused and detailed account of this character in chapter 11. This is the revelation that was held up for 21 days as the heavenly princes wrestled with the prince of Persia. 11.2 says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than them all. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. All of this was future to Daniel. And yet history records four rulers who followed Cyrus. They were Cambyses, Pseudosmyrtus, Darius I, Histaspes. Your guess is as good as mine at that one. And Xerxes. You've heard of Xerxes in Ezra 4.7. This Darius I, Histaspes, is also mentioned in Ezra 5 and 6. So with characteristic accuracy, the fourth of Daniel's predicted kings, Xerxes, was the climactic Persian king who used his great riches to gather a monumental army. History tells us that he had hundreds of thousands, one of the largest armies in the ancient world, to launch a military campaign against Greece in 480 BC. It was disastrous, and Xerxes never recovered 
ushering in the beginning of the decline of the Persian Empire, just like Daniel said. Verses 3 and 4 say, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority, and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. The parallels are so obvious that we have no problem identifying this mighty king as Alexander the Great. And just as his large horn, that symbol of his power and authority, was broken, Alexander, sure enough, died in his youth. And without the strong arm of central rule that Alexander provided, his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. Lysimachus ruled over Thrace and Bithynia. Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece. Seleucus Nicator controlled Syria, Babylonia, and territories as far east as India. And Ptolemy Ligidae ruled Egypt, southern Palestine, and Arabia. These kings were established right around 301 BC after the overthrow of Antigonus in the Battle of Ipsus 20 years after Alexander's demise. So at that point in Daniel's prophecy, he introduces the term, the king of the north and the king of the south. And they are specific titles that are given to the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires. The north and the south designations refer to their geographic locations with respect to Jerusalem, the center of this entire prophecy. In modern terms, the northern kingdom includes Lebanon, Syria, southern Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Transjordan, and the northern portions of Palestine. The southern kingdom is Egypt. And so the saga of history in advance continues with verse 5, which is exactly where we will pick up next week. Da -da -da -da. King of the north, king of the south. And where is it going to wind up? the little horn, right back where all these prophecies end up, because God's emphasis is always on the one that's coming, the one that's coming after Jesus. There were those kings, the kings that we wrote on the board who have all appeared in history, but all of them are pointing inexorably to the little horn who's going to arise, who's going to rule the world, who's going to attempt to make a seven-year covenant with Israel, who halfway through is going to break it, and who is going to bring about ultimately the conflict that must be cut short or else no flesh would survive. And Christ is going to come back, destroy his kingdom, destroy all the kingdoms of this earth, and he's going to set up his everlasting kingdom, and he's going to regather the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's going to rule over them from David's throne in Jerusalem. And all of that is written time and time and time and time again. Are you getting tired of hearing me say it? Because I feel like I've said it now for years. I feel like I've said it repetitiously. I feel like I've said it repetitiously. I feel like I've said it, you get it. I feel like I've been saying the same thing over and over, but that's because the Bible says the same thing over and over. And to ignore that is just desired wanton ignorance. But if you pay attention to what the Bible's saying, cheer up, saints, 
it's going to get worse. But then it's going to get gloriously better. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.